All righty. Let's get to it. Uh, I was very excited about talking to my old pal, Hillbilly Jim. Uh, but, you know, when we first got uh, back in touch a uh, weeks ago, he had just gotten the call that he was going to be inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame. And you know how crazy it gets around that period of time. And uh, on top of that, you know, I wanted to know how that experience was going to go. So instead of uh, having the conversation then, I said, let's wait until after the induction ceremony so uh, that he could tell us all about it, uh, along with, of course, his other great memories of a very memorable career in professional wrestling. And that is exactly what we did. Ding, ding, ding. Uh, folks, uh, my guest here on Primetime Shamuni is uh, was not only a tremendous superstar with the WWF, WWE, but uh, he was also really an ambassador and remains to this day for that company. And uh, I was fortunate to have an opportunity to spend a lot of time with him when I was uh, working for the WWF. And uh, Hillbilly Jim, uh, Jim Morris, thank you so much for coming on. We really did have a good time back in the day. How are you, my friend? Sean, it's good to be on this program. And boy, you know you have evoked some memories in me because uh, I remember both of us many years ago when we were both considerably younger, man. And it's <laughs> done me so much good to know you reached out to me. And I'm glad to, glad to be on this program. It's my honor. Yeah, you know, well, the timing of it is uh, is is perfect, and you know, um, when I started this podcast, you were you were right on my list of of guests that I wanted to get on, and uh, it just took took me a little while to track you down, and I finally got a phone number. I don't know how uh, or where it ended up coming from, and uh, it just so happened to be that week I was I was calling you was when you were uh, when it was announced that you were going to be inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame and I'm thinking oh great now he's going to think the only reason I'm calling him is because he got this great honor but uh that absolutely wasn't the case and I think you knew that anyway but uh the the timing of it was was perfect and and I can't tell you enough uh how uh, awesome I I think that is that you are now a member of the WWE Hall of Fame well, thank you, sir. Those words coming from you mean everything. And uh, your time and any time you call me whenever, Sean, would have been fine. It just happened to be a great week on that deal. And, uh, you know, I miss talking to you, and I'm glad we reconnected. And I'm hoping maybe as we move forward here on this primetime show, maybe I get to come back and do it again with you because, you know, for, for, the, for your friends out there that don't know, Sean Mooney was on the fast track to being the announcer in the WWF if he wanted to have been, if he wanted to stay there. And, uh, and I had the wonderful privilege of kind of being around him when he first come in. He was all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. And, <laughs> and boy, I tell you what, we had, some, we had some good times, didn't we, Sean? Yeah, we absolutely did. Now, we've got a lot of ground to cover because there's a lot I want to talk to you about. But I want to start uh, with uh, – it's we'll, we'll work our way backwards here because I, I had the chance to go to New Orleans and uh, spend the week there with my son. And it was just uh, – it was really an awesome – a couple of days there. Actually, we were there for about five days. And, uh, but I wanted to first get your take on that whole week and, uh, you know, what it, what it really meant to you to be recognized, uh, by the WWE. Well, you know, it's, um, it's kind of a, um, it's an insightful weekend because you have to go down memory lane. You know I mean? You yeah. talk about that a lot. And in the, you know me, really, I, I'm not the kind of guy that lives in the past very much unless people bring it up. And I love talking about the past because I've got a lot of good things. But 
I'm not much of a futuristic kind of guy. I don't believe it's going to be Friday or Saturday before it's the day that you're living. So I live in the now. Yeah. And uh, I, I enjoy uh, I enjoy talking to folks and pretty much the way I live my life. And I live it as it, as it comes up in front of me. And I tell you, this whole week and this whole uh, that whole weekend and the whole month pretty much leading up to that was pretty intense for me. A lot of reflecting going on. And, and a lot of things came up in my head, Sean, that I hadn't thought about in years. But I thought... I had a lot of stress going into that because I was bringing my children down, even though they're grown. Yeah. I really wanted to make sure they had a wonderful time. And, and that meant more to me than anything. And I was kind of worried about, is everybody got this? Is everybody got that? Is everybody in place? And hotels and all that stuff. And everybody got the food and everybody got the, you know, the after party tickets and the Hall of Fame tickets and, you know. And as it turned out, brother, they had a magnificent time, yeah. which greatly relieved me and pretty much intensified my weekend as far as pleasure. And of course, after the Friday night induction ceremony, it was all—it was a piece of cheese for me after that. But it was—it uh, was—it uh, was great fun to be there. But it was kind of intense. Yeah, I, I imagine it would be. But uh, and you mentioned your family, uh, and and I've talked about this several times in the program of of how difficult it is for uh, the superstars of that time, and even today, I'm sure it's it's uh, not that easy. But it's tough, and it was really tough back then because of the schedule you guys kept. Uh, how how did you balance all that with your kids uh, and getting in touch with your family, and then also being on the road so much and having all you know all those commitments to what you were doing at the well, time? Well, Sean, you know the, the entertainment business across the board is pretty intense and pretty it's pretty dramatic, and yeah. it's very taxing on families. Uh, it doesn't matter what form of entertainment you're in, uh, what area you're in. Uh, and the same thing with our business, and you, and you spoke right, because back in the day that you and I were in the WWF, yeah. our travel was a lot more intense than it is now. We would go extended amounts of days. I remember one time, Sean, I, I went 63 straight nights. I, that means wow. I wrestled 63 straight nights uh. all over North America. Yeah. And I, as I recall, I flew 53 of those 63 days, which Jeez. is pretty much unheard of by today because, you know, with, with, with security and flights being yeah. like there were, you couldn't do it today, and you just get plugged into it. And I'm not the guy that went the longest. I know one or two guys that went 90 days in a row without a day off, wrestling every day. So, you know, when you, when you got a chance to go home, it was very precious to you. And you know you got to have a pretty good home system to make that work. You got to be on good rapport with your with your family at home, especially if you got kids and wives and stuff. And I've seen a lot of marriages and a lot of families fall apart because of this industry. Mm-hmm. And uh, what my deal was is my kids were little then, and I kept them pretty much away from this business and kept them. And we always stayed in Kentucky. And you know my deal with me, I always stayed. I know this sounds kind of crazy and corny, Sean. But in the entertainment business, I only kept one family. I only yeah. had one family. I, I never had multiple marriages and multiple kids and multiple yeah. families. I didn't yeah. want to do that uh, because it's just I've seen I've seen the error of a lot of people's ways doing that. And a lot of times, you know, the, the same guy will divorce some woman and and he'll pay her, give her half of whatever he's got, and then he'll marry another woman that looks pretty much just like the one he divorced, mm. and then that'll go on for six or seven years, and then they repeat condition and rent and do it again and yeah. you know you just uh, you know you just don't have many times to do that before the uh the, the windows of opportunity close for you so i stayed in the same town i was from i stayed in the, i stayed in this in the same situation i was from 
and I always came back to it. And I think that was my key to surviving it. And I always knew that I wasn't going to do this forever. I knew that this was going to be a short-time thing, and I knew it wasn't going to last that long, and I knew I had to make the very best of it, Sean, that I that I could. And, and that's what I attempted and tried to do for the most part. Yeah, well, you absolutely did that. And uh, I want to take you back because in your WWE uh, speech, you, you uh, the theme really was opportunity and uh, you having the ability to to recognize opportunity when it came your way. Um, right. But early on, and, and I don't, and a lot of people don't know about you know your early beginnings, and um, you know, could give us a little uh, little story on that, a little background, because I know you were also a great athlete. So, uh, you know, how what was it like growing up? Uh, and uh, how did you get into athletics? And then how did that lead you to the ring? Well, I grew up, of course, in Kentucky here. And when you were a young boy in Kentucky here, uh, of course, everybody here aspires to play basketball. That's what this state's all about. Yeah. And at that time, yeah. football was not even second or third or fourth. I mean, football programs around Kentucky were usually pretty weak. And nobody mm-hmm. cared about it. the best athletes in your, in your schools, the great schools, high schools. They were all basketball players. And then they just get some other guys to go to have a football team just so they could have one. Because uh, that's what that's what Kentucky was all about from the University of Kentucky and offer up, but it was historic. So I I fell into that thing too as well, and 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 I lived lived and ate and drank and slept basketball yeah. all while I was all during the summer because you know you don't make a great basketball player in the fall when the season starts. You make it in the summertime. That's yeah. when you're out there playing and pick up games and all. And I was that kid, and all I wanted to do was play sports and basketball. I dreamed of basketball dreams, and. Um, as it turned out, life turned out pretty good for me because my senior year I had about, oh, I had two or three, uh, two or three shoe boxes full of offers from schools, about 60, wow. I think, or 65, wow. which was great. And, and, and I was all state in Kentucky and I was my, I was all time leading scorer at my school and stuff, which turned out really good. And, uh, and, and that's what I, that's what I really aspired to do. And, 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 you know, and I, and that's what got me in that world. And then after that, I wanted to do some pro basketball. Well, you know, I was kind of a journeyman in college because I'd, colleges I went to, I wound up going to four or five colleges, and I'd always screw up something, <laughs> get mad or something, or leave it. It, was, it wasn't because I wasn't a player or a starter, but it's just things I just didn't like. And it was all basically, Sean, yeah. being an athlete. It was, my, it was my fault and my mentality because athletes are kind of high-spirited, and they do some rambunctious, crazy things, you know. Me too. Yeah. It's before I you figured of, it out. <laughs> yeah, I gravitated more towards individual sports because I always liked weightlifting and weight training. And that uh-huh. weightlifting really helped me. It took me from, say, when I was a sophomore in high school, or I was about six three and a half and about, you know, 165 or 70 pounds. And by the time I was a senior, I had, I had, I had grown up to about six five and a half. By the time I was a senior, I was about 220 pounds. Which wow. made a tremendous difference on the basketball court because you yeah. got to realize back in that day the coaches didn't want you lifting weights. They all had this uh, illusion that if you lifted weights and stuff, that it would make you muscle bound or you right. wouldn't be able to shoot, right. which is totally wrong. That right. couldn't happen. You got to yeah. train like a bodybuilder to do that. And um, so, so with me, I kind of got hooked on individual sports, right? Individual sports. I kind of like that better because I realized that you could be in a team concept, Sean. And you can lay your heart out there, blood, sweat, and tears, and your blood. And if your team loses, brother, you still lose. Yeah. If somebody has a lack of concentration at a, at a certain amount of time, you lose it no matter how good you played and how much your heart and soul was in it. 
So I got a little turned away from that. Like I said, after I, after I finished some college ball, I tried out for some pro teams, and I didn't really make it. I, I went to Europe and stayed there for a little while and did a little bit in the uh, European League. And I kind of liked it. I didn't like being away from home that much, you know. Right. I didn't enjoy the lifestyles. And, you know, everywhere we went in, in Europe, we'd have to go on trains. <laughs> and, Sean, you'd get on a train going from uh, France to, say, maybe down to, uh, maybe to, to Denmark or somewhere. And you'd be on, you'd be on a, a, a train. There'd be people sitting on there with chickens in their lap. And it was like, <laughs> that was before the bullet trains, right? They weren't going 180 miles an hour then. <laughs> there'd be people sitting out there, you know, they'd be eating cheese and bread and drinking wine. I'm going, what the heck is this? You know, I'm from Kentucky, man. I didn't know anything about that. So anyway, I was kind of, I was kind of, uh, my, my illusion was kind of shot down. But I come back to, I come back and I always went to the gyms and I was, I got into weightlifting. I won a couple of weightlifting titles in the state of Kentucky, state championships a few times, and, and I started going around doing that, and I was in a gym one day here in Bowling Green, Kentucky, I think I told it in my induction speech, yeah. and a guy came up to me and he said, hey brother, he said, you need to get in this wrestling business, and this guy was a guy who was, uh, was a Canadian guy, who came from out up around Hamilton, Ontario, and those, some of those little areas like Kirkland Lake, somewhere outside of, of Toronto, and he was from that area where a lot of pro wrestlers came through there, because it was steel mining areas. And this guy's name was Bruce Swayze. He wrestled many years under the name Beautiful Bruce Swayze. He was in there with uh, Ernie Ladd and the Love Brothers and uh, and a lot of those guys, the Lewin Brothers, back in those days. And he wrestled all over America. He was in all the territories. He had married a lady down here in Franklin, Kentucky, about 20 miles south of me, Sean. And he had moved down here, and he had dual citizenship. And he's the guy that first planted that seed in my head about that. And he became a guy that really smarted me up to the business and an advocate for me, and a guy that kind of mentored me and he opened some doors for me. And that's what got me interested in it, because about that time, that WTBS out of Atlanta started getting real hot. I loved watching Georgia Championship Press. Because, Sean, they had athletes in there that I wanted to be like. I said, these guys don't look like the guys out here that are drinking 12 beers every night with their shirt off mowing the yard because you know some of those guys down here in the south <laughs> they look like those kind of guys mowing the yard next door you know yeah. out there in the ring throwing each other around but this this whole thing with jimmy superfly snooker and the paul orndorff was down there and they had uh they had all sorts of uh, young roddy piper was down there jyd was in and out of there it was a lot of tommy wildfire rich they had a, a buzz sawyer and all those guys they had a bunch of bad bad great looking athletes yeah. A lot of people, you know, Jim, they don't realize that, you know, uh, Jerry Lawler uh, had quite a territory down there. And, uh, I wrestled you know, for you know, Jerry Lawler. When I first yeah. Got, yeah, when I, my first territory I started in was here in Kentucky for a guy named Dale Mann. Was, that, that, a, was that a territory there? I mean, was Kentucky, like, what kind of a territory was that? Well, now what they did is, is Dale Mann was a wrestler and yeah. a promoter. He lived in a little town called Jamestown, Kentucky, Russell Springs, Kentucky, over in there. And Dale was a worker because he used to work many years ago in the ring for Dick the Bruiser years ago up in Indianapolis when all those guys were up there. So Dale was an accomplished wrestler himself, but what he would do, he would run these little shows himself. He'd promote them and he'd work the shows and he had his own group of wrestlers. And they would work They would work these little small towns all in Kentucky. We'd even go over some of them in Indiana. Sometimes they'd get one down in Tennessee or two. And Dale approached me one day in a movie theater shortly after Bruce Swayze had told me that. And he said, hey. My name's Dale Mann. My son, Mike, goes to school at West Kentucky University. He's seen you up there working at the gym, and he's told me all about you. He said, I'm just wondering, he said, would you like to get into business? And I said, Dale, 
As a matter of fact, I would. That began opportunity. The that opportunity. <laughs> that was that second opportunity that hit yeah, me. Right. And then shortly after that, I worked for Dale for just a matter of some months, and that's when I got the call from Stu Hart. And of course, I went out there opportunity again. And then after I came home, after a couple, a couple of months or maybe six weeks, my mom got ill, and I came home back. And then Jerry Lawler called me. The King called me. Him and Jerry Jarrett, they gave me an opportunity. He had a spot for me in Memphis. So I came to Memphis. Now, Memphis was a big territory down here, and they had a nice TV that they did out of Memphis yeah. on Union Avenue down there. Right. And they covered they covered parts of Mississippi, uh, Arkansas. They would also do a big part of Tennessee, and they even also went up in Kentucky and even some over in Indiana because we do shows in Evansville. So it was a big deal. You you would drive about two thousand miles a week in that territory doing your shows. I mean, hey Jim, wow. Jim, during the span of time though, um, I mean, what are we talking? How long did it take you once you started? Because obviously you were, I don't know how old you were at the time, probably early twenties there. But how long a span of time that did all this happen? Where you, uh, you know, got to the point where you were uh, obviously able to handle yourself in the ring. You get someone like Stu Hart to notice you and and Jerry Jerry Lawler. Did you, you know, catch on quick? Uh, was it a really short span of time, or were we talking a number of years? It was immediate. It was immediate. It was immediate. I had given myself, Sean, a window of time. I was not going to be one of these guys that just put a whole, whole long time into this and chasing something that didn't love me back, because I've seen guys do that in a lot of, you know, in music and things like that. I was going to give this pro wrestling a little while and see what happened. It happened really quick for me. I mean, uh, you got to go. It, it didn't take me long. I mean, I, I started out real quick, and before you know it, I wasn't in the business no more than a year or two before I was in the WWF. Wow. It was about a two-year. So all my opportunities, as I said in my induction, yeah. they just kept hitting for me. They just kept hitting for me. And then when I finally got that introduction, Bruce Swayze told me that one time again. He said, the WWF is coming down to Nashville, Tennessee, to the Municipal Auditorium on James Robertson Parkway, and they've got a stacked, loaded car. I mean, they had everybody in that dressing room. They had Andre, Big John Studd, they had Kamala, they had JYD, had Roddy Piper, Jimmy Superfly, Snooker. It went on and on. They had every because at that time, Vince McMahon and the WWF were buying up guys from all these other territories and yeah. building a super building a super company. So they, I went in there, he said, we're going to go down. He said, I know the guy that's running this show. He said, we're going to go down and make an introduction. And Bruce, again, opportunity took me down there, and I saw Pat Patterson. Mm -hmm. But as soon as they saw me, and I, I, and I kid you not, <clears throat> Pat wanted me to work a match that night. I said, I made the cardinal sin that wrestlers should never do. I never carried my gear with me. I had no idea they'd want me at that. Hey, yeah. Hey, some guy gave me a pair of boots. Jimmy Superfly said, look, give me some knee pads. Somebody, Roger Smith, give me some trunks. Somebody give me this, give me that. Next thing you know, I'm doing an opening match with this kid named Tommy Heggy. I get out there and do, we do about a 30-minute. We just do a, do a 30-minute go-through. And then uh -huh. that, I get back in there, Pat Patterson says to me, he says, here's what I want you to do. He says, I want you to, I want you to go, go back home to Kentucky, get your, get your Harley Davidson stuff, because that was a gimmick I was using in Memphis, and I want Memphis, you to meet yeah. me. I want, you to, I want you to come to Memphis tomorrow night. We're going to be at the Cook County Convention Center. He said, you bring that dinner, you're going to work against a guy named Salvatore Bolomo. I said, fantastic. So I went back home, man. I was all fired up. Got my gear, my, my Harley Davidson gear. Went right on back down to Memphis, and I, and, I, and I worked one of the first three or four matches on the card with Salvatore Bolomo. Pat Patterson told me, he says, I'm going to go back to the office. He said, you just you give me your numbers, and I'll have him call you. And honest to God, within, 
within a few weeks, three or four weeks, Howard Finkel called me. Yeah. Finkel said, hello, this is Howard Finkel. Call yeah. me. I said, hello, Mr. Finkel. And we would like to have you come and, 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 and meet Mr. McMahon, and we'd like for you to come to New Haven, Connecticut, to New Haven Coliseum. I said, okay. So he set up everything, and I took a big trip up to LaGuardia, and then I called a little puddle jumper over to <laughs> New Haven, and I got out there with that. I got out there with that Harley Davidson stuff, and I did a I did a match on a WWF card, and I think I must I don't know who I worked. It might have been Salvatore Bloom. Again, I don't remember. Yeah. Had a match out there, and in the dressing room that very night in that famous arena, that's the same place where Jim Morrison and the Doors got busted. He was supposedly accused of some lewd act. Uh, back there was some woman one time. It was a big deal that made rock and roll history. That's right. But yeah, that, the cops came out on stage. I think. That's <laughs> right. It, 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 it was the New Haven, the little New Haven, the convention coliseum, or whatever it was. And let yeah. me tell you, we got in the dressing room after my match, and you remember these names. Here's who was in there: Chief J. Strongbow, uh-huh. Mr. Man, George Scott, the Booker, yeah. and myself. Uh-huh. If they were standing right there deciding who I was going to be. What, what am I, what's he going to do? Because obviously, Sean, we couldn't use the Harley Davidson gimmick. Right. You know, you couldn't use that. You couldn't merchandise that. And Vince had a whole new way he was taking this company in a whole new direction. So I was just excited about getting my foot in the door. And I'm sitting there watching them talk about what I'm going to be. You're <laughs> like, like you auctioned yeah, off a yeah. ham. Yeah, right, right. Ham. But I'm standing there right <laughs> in the midst of these guys. Chief right. Trey Strongbow says, well, I'll tell you right now. I'll tell you right now. He said, there hadn't been a hillbilly in a long time. He said, we need a hillbilly. Vince says, oh, I like that hillbilly Jim. That's where it was born. Yeah. Vince said to me, well, where are you going to say you're from? I said, Mudlick, Kentucky. Oh, Vince rolled up that, that he, he rolled up that program and says, oh, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> and okay. that's exactly uh, how it started. Okay, yeah, and before we get into that, because I know you say it was a whirlwind, but... Uh, you put your time in the ring uh, before you got there. And I want to uh, just uh, tell people a, f- a little bit about that road that you traveled. Like you, you mentioned Harley Davidson. That was your gimmick. But, uh, you know, you were you were uh, with the, the CWA. And I, I know that, uh, you know, you, you, part of that seasoning, I'll call it, uh, you work for a lot of these different territories. And it and – it, uh, it it really gets you ready for the big stage. So when you do hit that point, uh, you're ready. But what do you remember of of that period of time? You said you know that I think when you uh, you, you spent some time in Canada with the Stampede uh, wrestling with with uh, Stu Hart. That had right. to be an education in itself. What what do you remember? And, and you do a tremendous uh, imitation, by the way, of Stu. But w- what was yeah. that? Well, it might have been brief, but it must have been pretty informative. <laughs> The whole thing was like a crash course for me. But yeah. you got to understand, I'd already become smart enough to the ways of the business yeah. from Bruce Swayze. Because he told me the ins and outs of the ropes and things, the things you do, the things you don't do. Uh, you know, the, the, the political behind, because Sean, as you know anything, behind the scenes is much more important sometimes than in front of the camera. Oh, yeah. And that's the way it was politically, because you had to figure out a way to not get heat in the dressing room with the boys. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I navigated that my whole career never did that. But let me say this to you. I remember the first match I ever did was in Glasgow, Kentucky, at the National Guard Armory for Dale Mann, for his little organization we had here. And I wrestled Cousin Junior. His name was Lanny Kane. And he was my first match over there. I'll never forget that. And then when I went to Calgary, it was a crash course in everything because we traveled 
five or six days a week all over Western Canada. They'd go up, or they'd go as far up as you could. They'd go to British Sparwood, British Columbia. We'd go all the way down into the States, Montana and Wyoming, places like that. Yeah. And it was intense, man. You're on those long 800-mile drives one way. Ugh. Oh, my God. It was tough stuff, and you learned everything real quick, and I absorbed everything. And, of course, I got to be friends with many of those guys and got to be around Stu a lot. But, but I was around Bruce Hart, who's one of my, my lifelong buddies. That's one of Stu's uh, kids. Yeah. And Bruce and I have, have been buddies and remain buddies to this day. We talked almost every week or two. But let me say this. I, I learned everything. It was really intense, and I just happened to be one of those guys that picked it up fast because I just happened to be kind of a natural and have an ability for this. Now, when I came back down and got the, and they put the, and Lawler put the first real big gimmick on me, which was the Harley Davidson thing. That was cool. And he put me with another guy and we called him Dirty Roads, kind of off of Dusty Roads. So right, it was Harley right. Davidson and Dirty Roads. And we had a big baby face team there, man. I got to wear the chaps and the Harley Davidson gear and uh, it was fantastic. And that was intense as well. That was intense as well. But you see, at that time, this company, Vince McMahon, was buying up all the talent. And the right. best thing that happened for me, Sean, Sean Mooney, was that I never had gotten no real national exposure yet. In other words, I hadn't been around long enough to where everybody knew of me. That's right. the reason when they, when they got me out of Memphis, everybody in Memphis knew me as Harley Davidson in Tennessee and, 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 and parts of uh, maybe Indiana. But... But it was on from those small AWA shows because I, I worked for a couple of a uh, couple of smaller independent people down here. And then I worked, of course, you say for Stampede Wrestling, and the one out of Memphis was AWA because Jerry Jarrett was one of the owners of that too. Him and Jerry Lawler. And let me tell you, when I got my shot, when I finally got my shot to go to uh, the WWF, I uh -huh. never. I said in my speech, I never looked back because, brother. Why do you want to take a step down to anywhere else? Everybody called me for years after wanting me to come places. Yeah. I just couldn't do it. Once you're used to going first class, it's hard yeah. to go on the bus. It's hard yeah. to go on the bus. You know, and that's that's very true because when I uh, left in uh, 93, and I even I remember sitting across from that table from Vince when I told him I was, I was uh, going to leave, and he said, you're going to WCW, right? And I said, no, I'm, why would I do that? I just want to do something different. And you're right, because to me, if I was going to stay in that business, why w in the world would I want to work for anybody else? Why would I want you're to right. go somewhere else? And, I, and I, yeah. yeah, you were at the top. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, what, but now fast forward now to this this meeting in a locker room in New Haven uh, right. and they decide, OK, you're going to be Hillbilly Jim. I don't. Uh, did you have a beard going then or with the biker no, gimmick or? and the big hair and everything. And, but I was just doing the Harley Davidson thing out of Memphis like a big old biker-looking guy. Yeah. <clears throat> so, so, so they said, you need to go home and get your gimmick and stuff together. You know what you're going to do? And I said, listen, I'm not really a hillbilly, Sean, but I know a lot of hillbillies. <laughs> so yeah. it wasn't a real stretch for me. Because yeah. I'm from Kentucky, and I know, what, I know what the hillbilly mentality is, and I know what the hillbilly mentality is thought of in different places. So I came home. I got my overalls together, and I said, I got to get a hat, something to go with this. And I remember <laughs> I had this hat up in my closet that a buddy of mine named Brill Stewart had given me one time because his father had went to Mexico, and mm -hmm. he bought one of them other Clint Eastwood kind of hats. And, and Brill had it one day. I said, man, that's a cool hat. I like that. He 
said, I said, let me give you, I said, man, I like it. I gave, I had some other kind of hat. He said, you want this? He said, well, you give me your hat and I'll take this one. And he gave me that one. So I just put it in the top. Yeah. I just put it in the top of my garage. And when I come back to get this gimmick together, brother, I went and got that hat and boom, I've still got that hat today. As a matter of fact, it's in the, they had it in, they had it in, uh, in, uh, in, in New Orleans in the, in the, uh, display down there over there at the Access, and the Vince used to keep it in a Hall of Fame thing. I'll, I'll get it back. They'll send it to me. The same hat I've still got today, it's worn so thin, Sean, it looks like it's made out of paper now. <laughs> but that's the same hat I had my entire career. Really? It's been all over the world with me. Yeah. And a little later on, I'd add a jean jacket, and then later on, Chief J. Strongbow wanted me to get a little old chain or a little old horseshoe chain and do all that stuff. But basically, I got the gimmick together myself. And when they decided they wanted to go with me, I mean, listen, when they got me in there and they decided they were going to brush me up against Hulk Hogan, how could you get a better introduction into the world of professional wrestling when you got the top guy in the world at the top company in the world giving you a push and giving you the okay? So when they brushed me up to Hogan and had me jump in that yeah. ring in Poughkeepsie, New York that night and save him from John Studd and uh, – uh, uh, John Studd and, and King Kong, or I think it was John Studd and Kim Patera. They were going to cut uh, Bobby. They were going to cut Hogan's hair, and Bobby Heenan was going to cut their hair. And I jumped up in there, and that's where we started all those vignettes. How, how did that? Train. Yeah, how did that all come together? As far as I mean, did you have any input on that, or did they just uh, huddle and come back to you and say, "Okay, here's what we're going to do." Uh, and, and this is your entrance into the WWF. Uh, we're going to uh, put you with Hulk Hogan. And we're going to, I mean, was well, they planted me, they planted me. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I'm saying when they, when they put this storyline together, uh, how yeah. did that all happen? Well, well, they decided, here's what we want you to do. Yeah. Now this came from the office. This come from the mind of this man, George Scott. And they're the ones that come up with this. We're going to have you to go to all these shows. We're going to have you dress up in your overalls and your jean jacket and your hat. And we won't put, and we're going to put you out in, in, in Madison Square Garden. We're going to have you in the ring in Bradford, Ontario. We're going to have you in the ring in the Spectrum. We're going to have you at the Poughkeepsie TV tapers. We're, you're just going to be showing up at all London, Ontario, whatever. We're going to have you at Toronto. We're going to have you at all these things. And Gorilla Monsoon said, well, there's a big old hillbilly guy. He looks like he's enjoying himself. And that's what they did. So the more they put the camera on me week after week after week, the hotter the, the, the water boiled. And yeah. usually there's an old saying, you know, the longer you let it cook, the hotter it's going to be. So they kept me on there and kept me on there. And the fans got into me. And I'd, I'd go in, hey, I'd walk out there sometime and get in line just like the fans and walk uh -huh. in there and get my seat. Everybody got to where they know me. They thought I was just like another one of those Mark fans that everybody likes. You know, we all like Marks for the rest of We love business, right? Yeah. So right. I, I went out, I, I did that deal. I did that until finally, after they cooked it, yeah, how many weeks was that? I'm trying to think. And did they have you get involved? Because I'm, I'm trying to remember back how that all came together. Because it was you know, you, two or you, three months. It was yeah. two or three months they had me on TV doing that before they ever broke me. People thought I was going to be in, but they weren't sure if I was the guy going to be in business. And everybody was just into it. But the more I would go, the more they'd put the TV on me. And, they, and, and Lord Alfred Hayes said, there's that big hillbilly fellow. He seems to be enjoying himself quite well, you know. And all that just made it sizzle a little more. 
And, and finally, so you never got involved in anything prior to that? I never, I, I never did nothing. They wouldn't, even, they wouldn't even have me to stay in the same hotel where the boys were. They didn't want me to see where they, they wanted to keep me away from everything so that the fans wouldn't see that I was one of the boys or knew any of the guys. They oh. kept me really, they kept me almost like sequestered, like you're a huh? jury. Oh, you know? that's really so cool. finally, when it come down to Poughkeepsie, right. the deal was going to be, I'm going to jump in. Here's the deal. Uh, I think I think um, God bless his soul. Um, uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, my my buddy wrestler uh, S D Jones. He's he's gone now. S D was in a match with somebody, and then Ken Patera and uh, and John Studd were going to cut his hair or do something to him. Now they just after they beat him in, in the tag match, they were just going to pummel. So Hogan rolls up in the ring to save S D. Right. Right. And he's kicking their butts, and all of a sudden they stop him and overtake him, oh. and that's when Stud, uh, Stud and Patera hold him back, and Bobby Patera, uh, Bobby Heenan rather gets these gets these scissors, and everybody yeah. sees little people are about to lose their mind. Yeah. Well, at yeah. this point, I'm standing up screaming because I'm right at ringside. They're saying, "Get in there, get in there, to me!" And I'm looking at the people like, "You want me to go?" And finally, it's like I can't take it no more. <laughs> Even though I'm not do this, I roll up in there. And I and me and Hogan we waylaid them, yeah. and when that's over, the people went crazy. And then yeah. that's when they had already set up these series of vignettes. They're going to shoot with me, you yeah. know, like Hulk Hogan training me, yeah. you know, me working out with Hulk Hogan. Didn't even give me a pair of boots, and yeah. and then finally it all accumulated to my first match at the Kipsy with Terry Gibbs, and then my first match in the Garden with Rene Goulet. And that's how I remember, uh, Jim, I remember those vignettes. They were, I actually look at, looked at them recently because, uh, they have some of them up on the, uh, the network. Oh, and I remember, I, yeah, those things were, were great. I, you know, I remember, oh, you know, Hulk drinking the eggs and you're looking at them like, what? <laughs> and then you're, you want to do it. And they have, I mean, it's, it, it, those things were awesome. Uh, yeah. but you, but you think back to that now, and this, and this is what I think, a lot of ways, you know, you try and explain to people what was so special about that time. And look, look how long they were able to build that storyline with you. Like you said, months and months. You were just in the crowd. They were able to, you know, set that up to the point where it was it was going to blow the roof off. And then, here, you know, and then the fans knew who you were. They're like, go save him, you know. Uh, that is a that is really what you do not get a chance to see anymore. And and building building the, the story. It could line. not be done today in this environment. I don't not, believe. Not with all because the paper. You know, technology, like we were talking about technology. Because for those of you that don't know, Sean loves this. I don't even have a computer in my house. I don't even have a smartphone. None of that stuff. A cell phone stuff. I like to do it the way I like to do it. I have somebody to handle my website for me. Somebody calls me and says, Jim, here's your email by phone delivery. Cause I just, I'm not into it. It's such, everything is so instantaneous yeah. now. And folks, you folks we are talking on a landline right now with uh, Jim at his house. We this are. is the phone that he yeah. uses. And you still have a, 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 uh, answering machine. I sure do. <laughs> I, I told your producer, he kept calling my house a while ago, but he would hang up because my machine won't let me talk. <laughs> until my outgoing greeting says hello, please leave your name and number, and I'll call you back. And then what you do is, whenever somebody starts talking, then I can pick it up. But he will hang up every time because he's not hip to that because he's used to it being the new way today. Because and, and listen, with my hand to God, I don't know anything about texting. I just don't care for it. It's just not my cup of tea. I like to communicate, Sean, like you and me do. 
I, I like think that you have the answer, Jim. I really do. I think well, that I more of us need to, to live that way. Our lives would be probably a lot, uh, a lot more stress-free. You know, you know, you know. I went and spoke to a couple of colleges about one of my sons was trying to get some uh, a degree at this university here, and, and the professor said, "Hey, could you get your dad to come and talk to us about his life and career?" This was some years ago, and I uh, called a professor. If I said, now, "I'm going to say some things you might not want to hear," and I told him, "He said, oh, no, please say it." And, you know, I got up and did my spiel for him because Lord knows my son needed some help in his grades, you know, and his, his, he gave him a little help on it, I think. But <laughs> I told him at the, end, at the end of my thing, I said, guys, and Sean, you will hear me out. Yeah. And, I, I know, and, and I know you're a producer here this too. We live in the greatest time now in the history of the world for technology. Things are happening now that if your grandfather or great-grandfather were alive, they wouldn't believe oh it's happening. Oh, my God, yeah. We it's have a at our fingertip. Yeah. It's amazing. But as usual, humans find a way to abuse it. And I tell everybody, technology is not here to be your life. It's here to help your life. Right, right. Yeah. Hey, put that phone down. The best things that humans do are what you and me do. We verbalize. Yeah. We need to talk. It's in our, it's in our DNA to communicate. And we need to do this. And all these things they put on these new phones make it to where you don't communicate. They have all these apps to keep you purposely from communicating yeah. verbally. Yeah. And that's what I think uh, a big part of it was because you didn't have that instantaneous, uh, you know, uh, visualization of what was going on. And, and what I mean, like with these storylines, you would have to wait to see these guys at a house show to actually you know, see these, these two wrestlers that, you know, had had, have got bad blood and you want them to get in the ring because you got to see them on Saturday, uh, step into the ring and maybe wrestle a guy that you didn't know who he was, but you know, that, uh, this feud's still going on and you didn't get on your Twitter and you didn't get on the, uh, the, the internet to find out, okay, what happened after that? You had to wait for it. And by the time it happened, you couldn't wait. You were going out of your mind. You, that was what you and Gene Oakland did. That was yeah. the importance of the wrestling promo. Yeah. Absolutely. He's saying, Sean Michael, this old hillbilly gym, when I get to uh, Lansing, Michigan tonight, I'll tell you what I'm going to do to Big John Studd. He ain't never been whooped good, but I'm going to whip him like a dog out behind the barn. Yeah. And boys, I want y'all all come out there. When we get done, we're going to do si do all over that ring. Stuff like that. That's what would put people in the mood. I want to come see hillbilly gym beat up that dog on no good Big John Studd. You know, and you've got to have that. Those were the things that drew me, really, and probably you too, to the world of pro wrestling. Yeah. I love the wrestling promos. How could you not love Roddy Piper, one of the best oh, of all God. time? Yeah. Those are the guys, Dusty Rhodes, Superstar Billy Graham, and you know, the son of a plumber from Austin, Texas, Dusty Rhodes. Oh, you know, yeah. those were the things that we loved. And in my opinion, or just my opinion, I think you miss a lot of it. Because now they have writers doing all this for these young folks. These young men are not comfortable. You know me, brother, and you know me and you. We've talked a lot, you and me in Oakland. When I got down there to New Orleans and I saw there was 22,000, 23,000 people, whatever it was, at that Hall of Fame induction, I saw they were going to put me on second. I was like a tiger smell bud. I said, a live studio, a live audience yeah, here, yeah. and I got the microphone. Do you think I don't know what to say? 
I already had it in my mind. I didn't use no notes. I didn't need no teleprompter, Sean, because I had it in my mind. Mm. And those were the things that we lived for. Because when I wrestled, first began wrestling, there was some nights you'd go someplace to wrestle up here in Kentucky, and there'd be 10 or 15 people there. And you know what the bill man would say, the promoter and the guy was right. He said, listen, guys, I ain't going to have enough money to pay y'all tonight. Yeah. But you all need to work in the ring. You need to work in that ring. And he said, if you'll get in there tonight, if you want to do it, now if you don't want to do it, I'll cancel the show. But he said, if you get in there and put in the work, I'll make it up to you on another show sometime down the road in the next couple of weeks. And we would all have such a zeal for the business. We'd get in there and work a wrestling match. Do you know how hard it is to work before 10 people? It's much well, easier to work before a WrestleMania crowd. Yeah, that's, you know, that's a really good point, Jim, because, and I think what a, uh, that was another thing. We've also talked a lot about the, the psychology in the ring that um, comes from really working a crowd. When you're working to 10, 15,000 people, it's completely different than when you're trying to win over or work. 250 people and that yeah. i think from a lot of these guys who came up that way some of them were the the best ever at the psychology that's involved in bringing a crowd up and bringing them down and being a you know and being a heel and getting heat you know that i and, and i and I, I don't know if you can fault these uh the guys that are in the ring today because in many cases I don't know. I come up in indie you know they come from indie uh, places and they do learn but but it's a different world as far as when when you're working like you said if there's 10 people in a crowd to you know <laughs> when you're talking 50,000 yeah a lot different listen a wrestlemania 3 for instance when it was 93 almost 94,000 the world yeah. record crowd indoors that time all you had to do sean was raise your hand up and look at the people and it would be the damnedest roar you ever heard. Right. So everything, you were like a maestro conducting an art, a, 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 a giant orchestra is easy. But when you go to some place like a Scranton Youth Center in, uh, in Scranton, Pennsylvania, it might be 150, 60 people, they're screaming all they can be, but it ain't the same thing. But to match is basically the same. But you've got to learn how to, to deliver it to them. You've right. got to learn to... You got to learn to take your time and make sure everybody in the house, if it's nine people or 90,000, see it because they come to see you. And you can't do too many things to confuse the people. That's why the Hillbilly Jim character, you know, Sean, I said this from the first time I walked out behind that curtain as Hillbilly Jim, the people got with me, Sean Mooney, and they no. never left me. They never left me. Yeah. Why do you think that that, and I want to talk about it, not not I didn't get my serious sex in radio show that I've had for 13 years because I'm Jim Morris, Sean. I got it because I'm Hillbilly Jim. And you know, that's amazing that these people never left me because I had that, I connected with them and they connected with me. And here's the the simple truth, and you've seen it. You've seen it, you've been around this business a lot of years. Everybody that goes out there that looks like it don't have that it factor. Yeah. The ones that get over the biggest and are the ones that go in those Hall of Fames are those guys have more of that it factor. If yeah. you don't have that, you can have a $2 million body and a 10-cent brain. It ain't going to get you there. Well, you know, <laughs> you and, gotta, and Hacksaw, Hacksaw uh, Jim Duggan has mentioned this many times that, uh, you know, with his character, that if it wasn't for him being that character and developing it over the years, that you know the, the guy he's still every single week he's somewhere because yeah, like you yeah. said that it factor and the and the, the 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 character that you were able to develop really like they give you this the gimmick 
But how many of these great gimmicks you saw along the way that never went anywhere? If it wasn't for those individuals, and it wouldn't, and if somebody handed you, yeah, somebody could open the door for you, but you got to put your foot in there and you got to carry it. Yeah. So um, I want to get back though to when when uh, that that uh, all that started to happen for you when you know you finally go in the ring and then you are you become a superstar. what do you remember of that period of time? It must have just blown you away, first of all, to see what was happening with the World Wrestling Federation. Professional wrestling was never going to be the same again. It, would, it was in the stratosphere. And, uh, and, and it sounds like you really were able to appreciate it at the time it was happening, too. You know, i got to be honest with you, brother. Yeah. I did right away. I, I never, I hope, I hope you can say this as my friend, and I believe every man that I've ever been in the dressing room around or any of the boys I've ever been in the ring with, I never changed. I've yeah. never developed that I've never developed that biggest word in the universe. Now we all have to have a little bit of this. But Sean and to all your listeners, the biggest word in the universe in entertainment is ego. Yeah. Oh boy. Ego. That's the biggest three words in the universe. I never, I checked that, I never let that drive me because I decided a long time ago when I began with this business and I learned from the old timers and I watched everybody that made mistakes before me. Yeah. Sean, if you don't do this business, this business will do you. Yeah. Yep. And we saw a lot of of that happen. I got out of this business with a handshake with a business. I, I I hope I gave it as much in representing it as it gave me. Well, those those uh, those years that uh, and and you you suffered through some uh, pretty serious injuries along the way, uh, but what do you remember at least from the ringside and some of the people that you worked with, you know, everywhere from you know everybody from uh, you know Big John Studd and King Kong Bundy and uh, Andre the Giant even and you know these were the really the the kings of the wrestling world at the time the best of the best. Harley Race, people yeah. like that, Don Morocco. Yeah. You know, Cowboy Bob Orton, a great in-ring technician. People don't realize how good Cowboy Bob Orton was. I mean, some of these guys could get, you know, they were as good as anybody ever. I mean, I've, I've been there with all of them. Bobby the Brain Heenan, a master in the yeah. ring doing his stuff. You know, just guys like that. These were guys that it was a pleasure for me. What a high spot it was, Sean, the first time I got to step into the Madison Square Garden. When I got to step over those top ropes mm-hmm. in the garden, Cause you don't know, boy from Kentucky. That's pretty doggone tall cotton. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, there's a, there's so many things. I just had an enchanted kind of blessed life, and I knew knew Sean it wasn't going to last forever. And and but I just wanted to represent it well, and I wanted to go out there and have a good time, and I wanted to bring the people along with me for ever how many minutes I was out there, and let them just have a good old time with Hillbilly Jim. And uh, I tried to carry all that back through the dressing room. You know how I always it was the dressing room. I yeah. like I like to keep everything going good and have a good time and 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 enjoy and enjoy every minute of it. I wasn't gonna I wasn't gonna live uh, waiting for this to get over. I said because I know you know all those towns that I went to. I've I, I said this. I got to go so many places in my life, and I want all your listeners to check this out. That I never would have had a chance to go, Sean Mooney. Right. I yeah. would have never had the reason or the occasion or the money to go to all these cities and places that I got to go because I was in the WWF and they had me all over the world. And sometimes I'd go to Cedar Rapids or Des Moines. I'm saying, man, I got to Omaha and Cedar Rapids and Des Moines again. We go sometime too often. But now that the years have gone by and I don't have the reason to go out there anymore, 
going to those cities was precious to me, and I wonder what they look like now because I hadn't been there in years. Mm. Those are the things that I stopped, smelled the roses along the way, and so to speak, I kind of had my cake in 82. You know. Yeah. Well, um, it seemed like just when things were really getting going, I think it was in 85, uh, uh-huh. you, you had a pretty, uh, pretty serious injury. February 25th. Yeah, February 25th, 1985, San Diego yeah. Sports Arena. Here's the setup. I'm I'm going to be the corner man for Hogan. Yeah. And we're going to do some things. And uh, he's wrestling Beefcake. Right. Bruce Beefcake, the barber. And in his corner is going to be Johnny Valiant, right? Boo, boo, boo. Yeah. We have this match, and it's going good, going good. Well, we create this spot at the end, which I shouldn't have went for because I was a little too green for go for this. Chief J. Strong will call this. And we should have never done this, especially right. with Johnny Johnny Valiant, because Johnny wasn't the most athletic guy in the world, was sweetheart of a guy. Yeah. I sustained a deal where they were going to do in the ring where Hogan was Hogan was going uh, was going was going to throw uh, or Beefcake was going to throw Hogan into the uh, into the ropes or something, and and Hogan reversed it and threw threw Beefcake into it while Johnny Valiant was standing up there with his back to, to the ring, and Johnny Valiant was going to come off the, uh, the middle of the apron there, and I was going to catch him in midair. Right and bear hug him while Hogan rolled up and beat Beefcake, and where I was going to be bear hugging, you know, him at the same time. What yeah. happened was when Johnny come off there, he landed first and come up and he jumped up. And when he did, I had my right leg extended. When I Ooh. picked him up, to, jumped up to catch him. His 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 boot of his one of his wrestling boots kicked me at the base of my of my right patella tendon. Here's what happened. Wow. I tore my patella tendon away from the bone. I tore my left rectinalum, my right rectinalum, and my medial collateral ligament at once. My kneecap, brother, went to the middle of my thigh. Oh, God, yeah. And it didn't even knock me down. It was like a car accident. And I threw him down, and I saw my muscles and things convulsing through my overalls. Oof. And I could really feel... My kneecap was on the inside of my leg in the middle of my thigh. I grabbed my kneecap, set my butt back down on the ground, and I pushed my kneecap back down to where I thought it should have went. I could have tucked it anywhere because it was gone, and that was curtains for me. I'd go right into the Sharp Cabrillo Hospital ambulance. They had to do a big surgery on me. Johnny Valiant was devastated because it was totally not meant to be. It was an accident. And, you know, that's why when I got the news, on Thursday morning at 8 a.m. in the morning, that Johnny had died in an accident in in, uh, in Philadelphia. I mean, in Pittsburgh, I was just yeah. distraught. One of my friends called me and told me that Johnny had just been killed, yeah. that a truck had hit him. And I was just, and all those memories, Sean Mooney, flooded back on me just like that again. Yeah, wow. But, uh, you, you, know, you know, you were never you know, anybody well, to that, take hey, it I laying that, down. I got that, I that injury, and yeah. I had a great doctor. The WWE took care of all that. His name was Dr. Tom Harris. He happened to have been uh, the doctor for the 1984 Olympic ski team, so he knew about knees. Yeah. He put my stuff back together in there, and I, re- I stayed out there for a while, put a big cast, because in those days, brother, you didn't have no little disposable cast. You take off, it would be the cast. Right. From, from from the from the top of my thigh all the way down to just above my ankle, and it was Ugh. and I had to stay in there for about six weeks, and then I went back out there and they yeah. tuck it off, and my leg looked like a noodle. I almost cried, yeah. and then they they rehabbed me, rehabbed me, and they had wires in there and everything. But you know what? I came back after that and had my whole career after that, yeah. and uh, thank God that I was able to endure it 
and thank God the company took care of me. And uh, but you know, those are just some things that people don't realize about the injuries. And and, right. and I remember Hulk Hogan, Hulk Hogan coming to me this, that night, and, and and I was sitting back in the dressing room. His wife Linda was married to him, and then they were young then. Yeah. And he come over to me, and he and she had tears in her eyes. And 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 I said, yeah, we'll be okay. I'll be all right. I said, yeah, thank you. And he was because I was about ready to make a bunch of money that year. Yeah, but no, he and I, saying it was just starting to. He crush. and I were getting ready to do tag teams all over all over the country. And man, I was going to make. I was going to have a whopper of a year, but yes. that put me on the shelf. <laughs> yeah, you know. But everything but, happens for a reason, you know. Yeah, but thank God Almighty, I come back from that. I come back from that, and that's that's what brought the advent of the other hillbillies. Well, I was going to say, if that wouldn't have happened, we may have never met the rest of the family. Uncle Elmer and Cousin Luke. That's right. Cousin Junior. And, I, you know, I think you mentioned, you said, you mentioned Lanny uh, Kane. And he, what, he was, wasn't he Cousin Junior? That's was Cousin he? Junior. Yeah. And then, uh, let's see, uh, Uncle Elmer was uh, Plowboy Frazier. Uh, Stan Frazier. Yeah. yeah. And uh, let's see, uh, Cousin Luke was Gene Pettit. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, so and, and how, he wrestled yeah. for a while as Gene Lewis, but his yeah. real name was Gene Pettit. Right. So how did who, how did the the family idea come all about? Did uh, well, listen. Kind of, when I got put on the shelf, the company had already had all that invested in me, yeah. all that time, effort, money, and I was over. It was, yeah. it was over. Yeah. So they they sent a crew out there to, to the hospital, take pictures of me. They put me on the front of the magazine, oh. showed me rehab, and they kept me alive. And this company took care of you like nobody's business because here's an asterisk. A lot of these companies you work for, if you got hurt, you were on your own. Yeah. Not that WWF, not that company. They took care of you. I mean, I never paid for it. I had to have a neck surgery too. I never paid a penny on the neck surgery or that, that knee surgery. They took care of everything to their credit. So but they took care of me while I was hurt, took care yeah. of me, but they wanted to do something to keep me out there in front of the public. So that's when they talked to Jimmy Hart. They needed to bring somebody in and let me manage them until I could get well and start working. So Jimmy Hart, mouth of the south, Colonel Jimmy, my buddy, he is the one that knew Stan Frazier, Plowboy Frazier. Right. A big man. And he brought him in and made him Uncle Elmer. And you know what? He got over tremendous. Well, I, I tell you, Jeff, I have to, I, I, some of the, the most hilarious moments were with <laughs> The stuff you did with the family. I mean, it was, oh, just, it was just so funny. I mean, it was so, it was perfect. It was, I, you know, I think back how, how over that I, and I think it's just because, you know, good old country boy and, and things like, uh, you know, hee-haw was really popular back then, which I think you made an appearance on. Didn't you, weren't I you made, on hee-haw? Two or three episodes of hee-haw, yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> but that was, you know, it was family. And and the WWF at the time was very, you know, we were we were very family oriented for the kids, Absolutely. and it was just a perfect time to have that. I, I, that's one of the reasons I think it was over. But God, I tell you, I loved the I loved the family. I just thought it was you one of the greatest. You know how that got over in the cities of New York and Philadelphia and yeah. Boston and, and L.A. The big cities ate right. it. Uh, they love that hillbilly stuff, and especially we do that. We do those little Tuesday night Titans thing, and we do that primetime wrestling, and and we get Lord Alfred Hayes come out there. We have pigs, and we'd be dancing. I'd get guitar, and we'd be singing Merle Haggard songs. We'd have and Vince would dress up in cowboy uniforms. It was it was just over the top right. entertainment. Oh yeah. man! I mean, when at the one where you had Alfred out there, and you're all sitting on the bay hill or the hay bales, and he uh, and he's got he's dressed up and 
just dis, you know it's the english man uh, with the with the uh, trying to be a country hillbilly and yeah. it, it just i'm telling you that stuff is just classic I said to him, I said, Lord, I said, Lord Alfred, hand me that little pig, Gert. He says, oh, I don't want to touch that pig. I said, you ain't going to bother you. just a little bitty pig. And he picked that pig, and that pig would squeal like a killer. Like he dropped it back down. It was the funniest <laughs> thing ever. And then, and then here's what happened. Uncle Elmer went nuts, so it was giving him problems. So I, they asked me, they said, uh, 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 Chief J. Stormer says, hey, Billy, have you got anybody else that we can bring in here? Because Elmer's giving us trouble. I said, I've got a guy that I believe would be great. I called up Lanny Kane, who's mm-hmm. the guy that helped train me, and I had my first matches with. I said, Lanny, I got a deal for you. Yeah. They want you to come to San Francisco, bring some overalls, some hillbilly stuff. I'm going to manage you. You're going to be a hillbilly. We're going to call you Cousin Junior. Yeah. I brought him out there, and he immediately got over. He showed up barefooted. He had a bell, cowbell. He had that stupid look on his face. He looked more like a hillbilly than anybody. Yeah. And the people ate him up. It was yeah. crazy. Yeah. He had like the one leg, pant, pant leg rolled up and one knot. And exactly. <laughs> Doing the mule kick. Are you kidding me? Sean, uh, it was gold. <laughs> yeah. But it was great. It was a great, uh, I guess, a bridge to uh, you doing more in the WWF. And, uh, well, and then, how and tough then was it to happened. come back from that injury, though? I mean, that was a major all that happened giving me time to get well. Yeah. And, you know, then, and then we even brought in Cousin Luke. So I, I had cousin, I had Uncle Elmer, Cousin Junior, Cousin yeah. Luke. Yeah. I mean, man, it was, and, and, and Uncle Elmer was about 480, 500 pounds, you know. Huge big old man. And, yeah. and I got to tell you something. The people ate it up. Yeah. It was the most entertaining thing. And the whole he-all factor on that was just a 12 right. out of 10. And uh, magic time, Sean. You know, and you were there. You were. I got to tell all the listeners, you were the greatest-looking young announcer coming there. I said, this kid here's got the Cape Miss tag. He can go as far in this as he wants to because, you know, you had all the things down. You looked great on camera. You were drilled. You were professional. I mean, you had the right haircut, the whole deal, and you got it. And then a couple times, you know, we'd hang out together, you and me. I'd tell you little things that you didn't know. And you were one of those guys that always would ask. And you appreciate You were like me and that you accepted better advice. Oh, yeah. And especially coming from that outside world. I mean, I was, uh, as, you know, I, I was not certainly not smart enough to business. And, you know, as I've mentioned many, many times, the people that helped me out. But you were you were also one of them because and I, I you know, I was a sponge. I just soaked it up. Because uh, it just made me better at what I, I did for the the company, so I, I you know you talk about like opportunity that that was certainly you know you show you uh, the you know show respect for the business, uh, you know uh, I, Alfred always told me you're not one of them don't ever think you are and uh, eventually they'll respect you back and it did and that's exactly what happened but it it took well, a long time. Along, you and me got along famously from the beginning because oh, yeah. you know me. I, I, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I, I'm always, I'm kind of like that old saying that they used to have at all the House of Blues. Is they had a sign up there that said, "Help ever, hurt never." That's yeah. kind of the way I was, man. This, this good. Hey, man, you're part of us because I knew you were there for us, and we're there. You're there to put us over and yeah. to help us, and I was there to help you put me over and help us. Yeah, well, you got it too, and, and the, and I think that Vince recognized early on uh, that. You were you were perfect for helping to promote his product, and then I remember you know you and I did I don't know how many trade shows, but you he would always send you, 
and 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 uh, because you know you you knew not only being grateful for what you're doing, but first of all, that gimmick was just over uh, unbelievably well. I, I remember when we would go to these trade shows, and that wasn't kid. It wasn't kids. These were like adults no. that were just <laughs> you know lined up. But it yep. was, and uh, and that uh, helped you out throughout your career with them. That's what why you've had that relationship with them for so long. You know, the Hillbilly Jim character has always been not one to push you away, but come on and join in yeah. on this. Yeah. You know, that it was a misnomer in that song I had, Don't Go Messing With a Country Boy, because all the fans knew I wanted them to come mess with me. I loved it. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted them to talk to me. I wanted to say, Hillbilly, what's going on? And, you know, I got to say this, and I'm proud to say this. I never refused the fans. I never refused them an autograph. I yeah. never refused them a picture. It's, and now, if I'm with somebody and Sean's handling me and he says, Hillbilly's got to go now, I'll say, I'm sorry, he's making me leave. I'll put the heat on somebody else. Right. Because I realized early on, brother, if it were not for these fans, like Hulk Hogan said, brother, yeah. we wouldn't have this business. Yeah. Exactly. And the other, the other thing I, I, I thought was what really helped your character is the fact that you were the nicest guy in the world. You know, you, you were approachable and you were this, you know, uh, old, good old country boy. But you know what? You mess with me or somebody I like, yeah, you're in trouble it. and I can back it up. And that's real. That's what it was. You, it. you know what I'm saying? That that. It wasn't, if you were just this pushover guy, he wouldn't have been over, but they knew if it came down to it, this guy's, he's got my back. And you know, they also knew this too, and I'm real proud of this as well. I never changed from baby face to heel. And went, I never did that. Yeah. Here, Billy Jim's got to be a baby face. Oh, yeah. He's like the people. And I just said, I am, and they come to me a few times talking about stuff. I said, I don't want to be a heel. I don't want to be a bad guy character. And because yeah. when you come back and, and change back and be a baby face again, you lose some of your steam, in my opinion, Sean. Yeah, that shine so, comes off Jim a little. Jim was a good guy from the beginning. I'm a guy of the people from the beginning. And doggone it, that's the way I wanted to end it. Yeah. So when you came back, though, and this is, uh, I wanted to ask you, because it was a pretty, it was a damn devastating injury. Like you said, they took that cast off and you got a little noodle there that you have, your muscles are atrophied. How how tough was it to come back? And what did it take to get ring shape again, in ring shape again? I was already bigger and strong because I kept lifting weights and stuff and I got so strong. But to get that wind condition that you need to ring, it was too right. tough. It was hard on you and you had to go slow. Now, I tell you, I babied that knee for a while there. And I iced that damn thing for a whole year completely, every day, all as much as I could. And i tell you what I did. I, I, would, I would also make sure that I, I was real mindful of it. I rehabbed it extra, but I would also make sure what I would do is I'd, I would wrap that thing real good and, and, uh, and get it to where I could not, not so much where I couldn't move it. Then I put one of those rubber sleeves over it to keep it warm all the time. Yeah. And then I also, even, even after that for a while, I even put a brace type thing on just to make sure I wouldn't get it hurt to the heel real good. Because, you know, you can hurt your knee, Sean, just being in that ring, because that ring moves up and down a little bit. And yeah. that, 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 that dislocates a little bit or it loosens your knees and makes them tight. So, I, you know, I didn't need that right now. And then I just babied it for a while. And then eventually all I had to do, all I had to do was just, was just I would wrap it a little bit, put the rubber sleeve over it, and put a knee pad all underneath it all over my, uh, under my overalls. And it, once it got strong... Now, it ain't never going to be, it ain't never the same, it ain't never like it was before. Don't let nobody tell you that. Because <laughs> yeah. when you get something devastating like that, look here, man. But I got to tell you, I had the whole bulk of my career 
And thank God, knock on wood, hit myself in the head. I've never had to have another knee surgery on that knee or nothing a lot at all because I've taken care of it. But, you know, the thing that it stopped me from doing, and I could dunk a basketball any kind of way you could dunk a basketball. Right, right. Backwards, sideways, one-handed, over the head, but slam dunks, anything you want to do from the side, throw it up off the backboard, catch a dunk. But, you know, that jumping is real hard on it, so I had to quit that real hard jumping and because that will flare it up. And that that was something that I still must admit to you that I still dream about that every once in a while, but I just can't go do yeah. it no more. And that that left me. But you know something, life is a series, brother, of trade offs. Yeah. You got to trade off something, and then you got to learn about the laws, and you know this, and the rules of compensation. You learn yeah. how to compensate. Yeah. Well, and you come back off of that, and yeah. like you said, that was probably the best period ever. Yeah. yeah, with yeah. a WrestleMania two and. Uh, uh, you know, in, involved in those WrestleManias. Uh, what really? Yeah, a, a, I did those two at the Trump Towers that we did, yeah. uh, a, a, a Trump uh, casino, whatever it was. And then I, you know, I did other ones from time to time in Canada and places like that. I, I did the. I don't know how many I was on. I think I've been on eight or nine WrestleManias. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's some it, either in the ring performing uh, or 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 doing uh, or, or or doing managing. You know, whatever. You know, so. Yeah. But you had all these matches along the way. I mean, uh, with uh, you know, doing stuff with you, with, you worked with Savage and Hercules and uh, oh, yeah. you know, Coco, Boss Man, oh, yeah. uh, oh, oh one yeah. man gang, Akeem, I guess we you know at, at that point. But uh, do the ones do they does it stand out working with Andre? Is that I'm, I'm just trying to think of all of the matches, and it's tough to try and go through them. But what really stands out of of moments in the ring for you? Well, working with some of those guys who were absolute people that were icons and legends are things that I could never forget, and I was always grateful I had the opportunity to be around these guys. Listen, I know Andre the Giant. I tell him jokes, me and him tell each other jokes. I know Harley Race. I've been in the ring with King. You know, I know about wrestling is great Don Morocco. You know, I know these guys straight up. You know, I've been in the ring with with, with, with Bruno San Martino. You know, I got yeah. personal advice from the great legendary Gorilla Monsoon, Lord Alfred Hayes. Bobby Heenan was a dear friend of mine. I just got these wonderful personal memories that are just amazing. And uh, Andre the Giant was was one of a kind. And I got to tell you, I've told many fans before. I've wrestled him before, and I've wrestled against him before. I'd rather wrestle with him yeah. than to wrestle him. Because trying to wrestle Andre was like, uh, the way I put it in, in hillbilly terms, if you've ever been down on the farm and you ever touched a cow or a horse's body, that's kind of a lot like what I would associate Andre feeling like when you have a whole Andre because it, yeah. it wasn't, it, you know, Sean, it wasn't human proportion. Yeah. And if it didn't want to move, it didn't. <laughs> now, that Big Show's got a little bit of that in him, too, yeah. but not quite as much as Andre had, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, uh, and Show always talks to me. He was, you know, he was there talking to me a lot about Andre. He asked me, he, he wears me out, but asking me Andre questions when I'm around him because he really wants to know. But Andre was uh, into a world and a class by himself. And, and he, Andre was like this. If Andre liked you, he was yes. the best with you. If he didn't yeah. like you, he wouldn't Yours. give you the time of day. And it didn't matter who you were or what your title was in life. Yeah, That's and it made it worse if he didn't like you in the ring. <clears throat> oh, my God. Uncle Elmer come up to me and Bobby Heenan one time. This is a thing, and he says, Hillbilly, why don't Andre like me? <laughs> and before I could say anything, Bobby Heenan said, well, how do you know he doesn't like you? 
And Elmer said, because he told me so. <laughs> uh, Bobby Heenan said, well, good damn luck with that. <laughs> and I said, make you that. That should have chilled up my spine. I said, that ain't going to be good. Mm. Yeah, it's not going to go well. I'm sure you know, it didn't. But you know what? He was a guy that I loved him. He had a sense, but he led, he led, in my estimation at the end, kind of a sad life. He died early. Uh, he couldn't hide. You know, he couldn't mix in with with people. He always stood out. Uh, there's no way he could have no what we call anonymity. No. You know, no way. And everybody just stared at him. And it had to be tough with him, you know, like he was. And, and I had love in my heart for Andre. He was a good guy to me. He treated me good. And Andre was 100% about this business now, Sean. Yeah. He was all yeah. about this business. And uh, he's one of those kind of guys that uh, I think maybe you only get one in your lifetime that comes through like that. And I think the boss was like that. Yeah. And I and you're right, though. Uh, uh, either he liked you or he didn't. And uh, – for some reason, he liked me. Uh, I mean, I, I, you know, got along with him tremendously well. And, you know, it wasn't like you were you, you sitting down and uh, joking with him every time you saw him. But he would, you know, you'd be sitting there and he'd just come over, sit down, or or uh, ask you to, you'd be walking by, he'd tell you to come over. And, yeah. uh, you know, he really, uh, as you said, people, no one in the world, we could never understand what he went through. We can, we can try to, but like you, you mentioned that he was to a lot of people, this freak in their minds and they, and, and he couldn't go anywhere. It's in an airport. I, I mean, I know they, they've got the, uh, the new documentary out, but I think that there's even a lot in there that, that people, you know, still don't understand about him. But, uh, you know, those who knew him really, they had, you know, that he had a heart of gold. He was, a, he, and Tim white, um, you know, who was very close to him, said he hurt just like everybody else did, you know, and it was like people didn't understand the, that. And, you know, so. If you cut him, he bled just like we did. Yeah. Uh, you know, he was just a big, just a huge guy. And, you know, I spoke with Timmy. Uh, I always speak with Tim a lot. He was at, at WrestleMania at, in New Orleans, and we had a, about an hour conversation, and we laughed about the good times, and, yeah. and we talked about all the stuff, and we talked about Andre, and, and I said, you know, I said, I really, I really am so happy he got to be around you a lot, Tim, and I know y'all had that little bar together over in Providence, yeah. and yeah. I said, y'all were buddies, and you and he said, Jimmy, said one of the highlights of my life. I said, I know it was, and I said, but I always told you, and you know how I felt about the boss. He said, well, Jim, he really loved you. I said, well, I loved Andre, and, uh, and I wish I could have been, I wish I, but he wasn't, he wasn't one of those kind of guys that allowed you to get too close to him. You do, do you follow what I'm saying? Yeah, no, that's exactly what I was saying. Like it wasn't somebody like you, you know, he did have people that were in that circle and, you know, Timmy was one of those guys, but at and the you same know, and time, you know, many, many yeah. of the guys in the wrestling business, the pro wrestling business, uh, you know, a lot of them are like gypsies, you yeah. know, they're just everywhere. And, and that's the way the nature of that business was because yeah. there used to be so many territories and, and, uh, but, but it's like this. If we don't see each other when I'm in New Orleans, when I get to the t- when I get back there in the back, they got a lot of young, a lot of young boys and young people that I don't yeah. know. But but the, but the, but we all get to the we all get to a, you know like backstage at the Superdome there where they're feeding everybody. We get a table too, and I look over there as Ron Simmons and myself and yeah. and Jimmy Hart and there's Ricky yeah. Steamboat and 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 of course we all love. Uh, we all love uh, uh, Booker T. He comes over, yeah, and yeah. any of the any of the guys are the older guys. We all just we just gravitate towards each other, right. you know. And it's not like but, if you saw him, you know, if you didn't see, hadn't seen him for ten years, it's like yesterday. It wouldn't matter. Right. It would not matter. We go back. 
we go back to the same thing that we yeah. remember before. Yeah. And you know, that's what that's what Lord Alfred Hayes told you. Yeah. We've got this fraternity thing that you have to be in it to understand it. Exactly. You know? And I, mean, uh, I imagine that you're grateful to Hulk Hogan. I, I don't know, uh, you know, I, I never really knew of your relationship with him, but uh, the fact he was one of the first people who was really uh, helped put you over. Um, has that, re have you guys stayed in touch? And what do you recall of that relationship when you guys were with the WWF at the time? Well, of course, but of course I, I am, I'm thankful about that. And I have told him in no, in no <laughs> unconditional terms many times is what he's done for me. When I have, when the Gary West wrote my book down here, uh, uh, Terry wanted to do the forward. Wow. And uh, Jimmy, Hart, Jimmy Hart did a forward well, so I've got double forwards, one from Hogan. He yeah. said some things there that were very touching to me yeah. because Hogan had told me, he said, he said, hey, Billy, he said, I just want some, I just need some help in this. I can't do this on my own. I need other guys like you that's going to get over. He said, so we can keep drawing. Because you got to realize, Sean, we did three shows a night sometimes. Yeah. We had oh, a I know. Yeah. A middle of the country, and yep. every one of them were sellouts, especially the ones with Hogan, because we had so many great workers in our in our company that you could put, you could make great matches in every town, and it would pretty much sell out. But of course, the Hogan shows, Sean Mooney were absolute icons; they were going to sell out. But I told him, now listen, on a on a on a human level, I yeah. wanted to be closer to Hogan, but I didn't live in Florida. He had a lot of people that always would get his ears, and I suspect like anybody over like that, everybody was just around for the good times and what he could give them because yeah. he always picked up the checks and all that stuff. I wasn't that guy. Yeah. I told him unconditionally, I said, brother, if you ever need to talk to me, I'd love to talk to you. I said, I wish I could be around anymore because you just need somebody that ain't there to take advantage of you. You just yeah. need a friend. And, yeah. and I wanted to be that more, but I, I, I told him on many occasions, but you know, it just never did never did materialize like that. I wish he hadn't made the cardinal mistake. And I think it was a cardinal mistake when he did that reality show. I think that I think that caused the demise of his family. I do believe I may be yeah. wrong. No, a lot of the look at them. A lot of these shows that, uh, yeah, I think that if anybody ever gets offered a reality, they say no, <laughs> no, thank you. Right. Because you know what? You know what? If Hogan was so wealthy and so over, yeah. he didn't need to do that and jeopardize his family. Think of this, and I've said this many times, and I'll listen. I'll let your listeners listen to this. If Hogan had just went back to Florida, he's a Florida boy through and through. If he just went back to Florida with that impeccable name, Hulk Hogan retired, opened up a chain of Hulk Hogan bowling alleys, sub shops, pizza and sub shops, all sorts of things. Hulk Hogan tanning salons. There would have been people going crazy to open up all that. He could have been lucratively wealthy like one of these the Silicon Valley guys just off of his name. Yeah. But you see, I, Terry had this whole thing that a lot of guys get. They stay too long, and that biggest word in the universe drives them, that thing called ego. Yeah. They just want to get back in there and do it more and more and more. Sean, here's, here's the difference in Hillbilly Jim and all them. I don't love nothing that don't love me back. Yeah, and I guess at some at some point the, that the, that's the way the business is. It's just uh, inevitable. Uh, and when right. uh, when did uh, at least for for the ring part of it, uh, did you decide? You know, okay, uh, I, I don't know if it was with a neck injury or it just takes a toll on your body. But when did you start to uh, realize that uh, you know, not that you were leaving the business, but you couldn't do what you were doing in the ring anymore? 
I always wanted to leave this business kind of kind of on on my own terms. I've seen too many guys hanging there too long, and I never wanted to be one of those guys, Sean, where people said, "I see Hillbilly Jim working in the wrestling ring." How old is he? Yeah. Well, I remember him when I was a kid. That and you know, and, and in our business, they will afford you because the wrestling fans are so forgiving and they love you. Yeah, they will yeah. afford you and let you get back in there. Where baseball won't let you do that. If you can't throw that ball, or you lose yeah. a step in basketball, or yeah. you or you get too old in football, they'll just say you're done. with it. But in but in but in pro wrestling, they'll let you keep going. I wanted to get out of there while the getting was good and not stay too long, like a lot of guys that you know who they are. I don't want to mention them, but. I knew that when that neck surgery come up, I said, look here, I got two knees. <laughs> this is just hillbilly gym uh, common sense stuff. This ain't, no, this ain't no Harvard degree. I said, I got two knees. I got one of them I give up pretty much for this business. And I said, I only got one neck. Yeah. And I said, I can get this fixed. I don't want to go back and jeopardize this because you're messing with some stuff. Right. That could uh, cause you some problems. You want to be sure you can get out of bed. Yeah, uh, and I yeah. always had the confidence that I would find something else, and it's always been that way because you know I gave it up. And like as soon as I knew I was going to have that neck surgery, I knew that was going to be it for me. And that that's when the door. I called the, my friends at Coliseum Home Video in New York, yeah. and I said, "Hey guys, it's Hillbilly." I said, "You know, I've done a lot of stuff for you guys over the years, a lot of trade shows and stuff." And I said, "I was just wondering. I've got a concept. I don't know if it's if it's doable." I said, "But." I'm getting ready to get out of this ring because of this neck. I said, what do you think about bringing Hillbilly Jim on as one of your salesmen? Mm -hmm. They went crazy. They brought me on. I become a salesman. I become the director of sales for North America for Coliseum Home Video for a while there. They gave me that title. And that, I, but a lot I, of that I, was with appearances, right? You would go to uh, trade shows and then also. I would do that. That's, that's what I would do before. But then I became a sales rep. I would go to all these distributors around the country, and I would tell them what the new title was going to be out. I'd tell them the street date on it. I'd tell them the order date on it. I'd tell them the suggested retail price on it, and I'd tell them the retail price on it. And then I would tell them what the bells and whistles were on it, and the people loved me because here I am working with them individually and these sales staffs. I'd call them my tag team partners. It, and they, I'm, I'm actually coming in a part of the business to sell them. That's like somebody in the movies coming in yeah. and being a part. Right. So it got over madly. I did that for a long time, and then I went back, and they wanted me to start managing the Godwins. I split my time up. I went back and started managing the Godwins. After I did that, the WWE decided they were going to take it over, and they changed the WWE, take it over in home. And I got me an office in Connecticut, which I never went to, but I had an office up there. And I went to work back for the company again doing that. And then they farmed did it you, out. Did you miss it? Or what, what, what brought you back to it? Besides, uh, I, I just didn't want to be in the ring. I just didn't want to be, I just didn't want to be in the ring. But everything just, uh, other things around the business just kept opening up for me. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I didn't miss the ring stuff. I mean, I, mean I, I don't even think about that because I'm happy and I'm at peace with that stuff. I'm right. glad I did because I knew someday I'd have to quit that. And I just wanted to quit on my own terms. But <clears throat> they brought me back wearing a lot of different hats, like I say, from, from, right. from home video sales to managing. I did TV announcing at Madison Square Garden Network before yeah. I, I, I went back and did a couple of that. I did the All-American Wrestling Show with Gene Okra for many years. And then I, they brought me back, like I say, and, and, and as a manager for the Godwins, they brought me back after that and had me do special appearances. I'm the one that did all the, the fan access they have in yeah. New Orleans. yeah. I and that, started that with John Sohegan started that with me. I did five of them in a row. The first five, 
but we started in one part of the country. Like if, if WrestleMania was going to be in New York City, yeah. they'd start me with a with a tour manager, his assistant, and a wrapped SUV in L.A. Right. And we would start going across the country. They'd send me out guys. We'd do different venues, and we did these little mobile fan access tours. Yeah. And we took them all. I did that for five years, and on the third year we did it, the thing got to where they were spending $3 million on it because they were having buses. And finally, after five years, they decided they were just going to keep it in the city that WrestleMania was going to yeah. be in. So yeah. John Sohegan pulled my number on that, and I got to do that. And, you know, and then, of course, they still bring me back. They let me be on Legends House, and it's just been a blessing, you know. Yeah, well, and like as I said, uh, you I've always thought of you not just as, as a superstar, but as an ambassador. You really... Uh, right. As far as uh, a person to represent your product, I don't know too many others that have right. done it so well for the WWE. And you brought up Legends House, by the way, which <clears throat> I have to tell you is one of my favorite, uh, I guess we call it a reality show. Uh, or, or <laughs> I, I'm telling you, I, I, uh, when I uh, began doing the podcast and um, – I was going to have several of the guys that were a part of Legends House that were also guests, and so I sat down and I binged on on uh, on Legends House. Okay, Jim. Wow. So yeah, I did. I binged, and because it, I had I can't remember who I was interviewing. It might have been Gene or something. I wanted, to, and so anyway, I binged on it, and I started watching it, and I got about I don't know. I was like maybe two episodes in, and I'm thinking, oh man, what is going to happen with this? Because right now, all this seems to me is old cranky men in a house who, you know, I mean, it was real. I'm just thinking, and it was, you know, guys are uncomfortable. And then you had the whole Tony Atlas thing. And I'm like, boy, this is just right. Gonna go south, right. They were okay. Hey, they were cranky from the oh, beginning oh my and God. uncomfortable. And this was not, this was not something that was predetermined because here's what they made them do. They made everybody, you're going to love this. So this was right up my Zen alley. They made everybody give up their phones. They made everybody <laughs> give up their, their computer, you couldn't do no texting. You couldn't. They, we didn't have TV to look at in the house. There was no radio. We could not read magazines or newspapers. And they were going out of their freaking minds, Sean. <laughs> and to I me, know. I was like, in heaven. Yeah. This is what I've been praying for a return to. <laughs> You're like out in the yard doing yoga. And, uh, you know, oh, I'm upside like... down. I was bouncing around. They were feeding me the best food God ever fed anybody. I'm living in a mansion in the Rancho Mirage, California. I'm like, Jeez. I'm working out. I'm do, I'm lifting weights. I'm, I'm exercising. That we're going around having fun. Everybody's uptight. I said, guys, just cool out. Ain't nothing to worry about. <laughs> you know. Yeah, you were like the uh, you know the voice of reason through all of this. And I tell you, as as I, I you know I kept as I kept watching it, it won me over because uh, and not to say that that they got uh, you know they were still cranky at times. Yeah, but it was, it really, I'm telling you, it was well-produced for one thing, but to yeah. see this, it kind of came, uh, you know, full circle and you see the, the, you saw the relationship develop between Roddy and Hacksaw and, yeah. you know, Jimmy, uh, when he, uh, you know, uh, faces the, the death of his daughter and, uh, you know, it, I'm telling you, I would, there were times I was weeping. There was times I was, you know, and maybe I don't even think it was because I knew these people, and by the time I watched it, and you guys had that final dinner when you wanted to kind of go around the table, and yeah. I know like the big reveal was supposed to be that you know Pat comes Pat. out of the closet, but yeah. everybody yeah. knew you know everybody had been around Pat and known that yeah. for decades. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. I'm telling you, just the the other human stories that came out of that 
I, I was I one of the best. Pat, so I, I asked Pat, me and Doug and said, hey, Pat, me and Doug always wanted to ask you something. How come you never took a hit at me and Jim? He said, oh, you two are not my type. Because <laughs> we would laugh. I mean, Pat was the greatest and is the greatest. He was hilarious. You know, we just had the best time. Listen, I'm going to tell you something, Hoss. I had a great time doing it. They asked me if I'd do it again. I would have done it again because you know what? I enjoyed every freaking minute of it. But here's the deal, Sean. All those boys that I knew, every doggone one of them, but I never really knew them. You know why? I never really got to spend any quality time. Brother, when you spend six or seven weeks in a house with people every day, you get to know them. <laughs> yeah, everything. Uh, I, I imagine you learned uh, where, what were what were some of the things that stood out with that you learned about people that you had no idea besides the fact well Howard was Howard uh, but yeah. <laughs> but really I mean we're, did you... I learned I learned there's no reason to complain about women being whiny and naggy because these guys <laughs> were doing the same thing. <laughs> I <know. laughs> hey, I yeah. finally put my foot down. I saw I saw it was going to hell in the handbasket, yeah. and I said, listen, guys, if you guys Duggan. If you and Tony start fighting, because I know y'all generally squabble each other and y'all have this thing against each other. It's been it's a long, ongoing thing for many years. Right. That's, I said, but if you guys get to fighting here, they're probably going to shut this whole thing down and we'll all be done. Right. I, said, I said, here's what we're going to do. Tomorrow night, we're going to cook a hell of a dinner. We're going to all eat. I said, because if people sit down and share a meal together, they'll loosen up. And you, get to, and you know what? We got to doing that, and they loved it. Yeah. And that's uh, what it was. Because, you know, when you sit down, Sean, and break bread with people, you know, you loosen up. You have a little more fun. You start enjoying yourself. And then after that, and I'm going to tell you, some of those same guys, some of those same guys had tears in their eyes the day that we left. And I was emotional, too. Yeah. Well, it's we funny. We left and I never knew. And I said, and I said it then. I said, if they sell this to a regular network. Mm-hmm. I believe it'll be a hit. No, no, I'm telling you, I, I, I've been, you know, I was a producer all for most of my career before I became to the WWF. I mean, I, I was involved in, in producing sports television and, you know, I'm just a, a viewer and, and, but I think I know what's entertaining and I'm, right. I'm, I'm telling you, I think, I, I think I kind of went into it with thinking, no, what's this going to be like really? And it, yeah. it, it hooked me. It really did. And I, I told, uh, you know, my friends with the WWE that, you know, that I knew that were involved producing. I said, I wouldn't tell you this if I didn't mean it. I, I said, no, I thought it was a great, a great, uh, series. I really did. And I'm surprised that, or maybe I, well, I probably not that surprised. They haven't done another one because I know that to do something like that is very expensive. And, uh, I don't know. I mean, maybe one day they'll do it again, but I don't know how they top that one. This is Seriously. what I told them. This is what I told them. When we all got into that house there, the first day. You know, all of Tony and Pat and Duggan and, and uh, Roddy and Jimmy and, you know, everybody, you know, yeah. Gene. Yeah. And, and we're all sitting around. And, you know, and they were all in the Hall of Fame. They all thought I was in there as well. Yeah. I was the only guy in there at that time was in the Hall of Fame. Wow. And they got hot. They all got hot. Pat couldn't believe it. Pat said, well, would you go in if they invited you? I said, well, yeah. I said, but Pat, listen, don't you guys get all excited because, brother, I've had a Hall of Fame life. Yeah, uh, uh, wow. I said, Why else do you think? I said, do you think if they didn't like me somewhere, they would have put me in here with you guys? Yeah. I said, I love what you guys are saying, but that's not for me to say. 
I said, let's let's just have a good time. And, and I took that whole thing in there, and I enjoyed every moment. And I tried to bring them along, have fun with them. Now, they were a little uptight. Many of them, it took them three or four days or maybe a week before they ever started relaxing. Really. Yeah. Well, you know. it was it was great. I, I'm telling you, I, I, uh, I really enjoyed it. And but one thing it revealed about you that I don't think uh, you know people realize because they knew you as Hillbilly Jim and you were when they saw you were pretty much in character that you really were and and uh, Hacksaw we described you as the, you know Renaissance man because he was unbelievable in the morning you know he's out there to, the sun's coming up he's out doing yoga poses and and he plays the he plays the guitar and uh, you know and and you cook and and uh, you know it it, it seems like. I don't know, but did early on in life you realize there's a balance to everything? I, uh, I, I because that's that's what he he describes. He's, he's a Renaissance man. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you know, I've, I've thought about this a lot, Sean. I think you appreciate this. Yeah. I have a little theory that I live I live under. If a man is known to be the best TV sports commentator in the world, and everyone knows that he or she is the best commentator in the world when that person lives their life and they go on to the end everybody's going to remember them as being or him or her as being the best sports commentator in the world however if you the person that does that if that's all you do your life and all you want to do in my opinion you've led a shallow life and i'll tell you why life is about experiencing things sean life is about getting out and taking a trip Life is about getting out and learning something you didn't learn, going to somebody that you didn't know and talking to them, eating something you didn't know you'd like. It's about life is about doing different things. I don't want to just do the same thing my whole life all the time. I like doing things I enjoy, but I like picking up additional things. I realize that I'm going to get out of here soon, Sean Money, and, and I'm going to, most of the things in this world I ain't going to know. Because now I have more of, a, of an appetite to learn things than ever because I realize just how much there is to know that I ain't going to know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How, how did music become a part of your life? Did you uh, just pick up a guitar when you were a kid? Or what? I'm from Kentucky here, and about everybody down here in the South, yeah. especially Kentucky. My mother, her sisters, and all of them, they all played guitar and sang and stuff. I had a couple of them that, that sang back up on the Grand Ole Opry back in the 40s with people and stuff. Wow. And I just love guitar playing, and I always pick up guitars and and, and, and I always I started playing guitar when I was a little boy, about about eleven or twelve years old, because I I saw a little song that I wanted to learn how to play, and I thought if I could learn how to be that, I'd just be the catch meow. And I started with the guitar. And back in those days, coaches and stuff and sports uh, people didn't think that those things could live on the same street. If you played in music or you played in a band, they didn't want to hear about it. They didn't think that you could be an athlete and be a musician. Yeah. You know. So, so I, that's just something that I did all my life, and playing guitar especially has been a real friend of mine because you know a guitar don't ever talk back to you if you're having a bad day it's there <laughs> yeah. for you, and it always is true to you. And if you if you're sick or you don't feel good, you can play your guitar when you don't feel like going and working out, or if you can't do something else, it's kind of a, it's just been a real good friend to me, and I think it develops something in you appreciation for other things when you when you're able to do stuff like that. And everybody, Sean, has an inner skill. I'm sure your son, I'm sure he has some kind of a skill if he just finds it. It, yeah. might, be, uh, it might be singing, it might be playing, playing something. But, I, but, but, but you know, when you do music, it's the only thing known on earth that activates every lobe in your brain at the same time. Not mathematics, not equations, not scientific facts, but music. Yeah, that's Play awesome. It. 
And uh, and another thing I want to mention before uh, we wrap this up here, though, but uh, you you mentioned the hillbillies hillbilly Jim's moonshine matinee, which uh-huh. uh, I I don't know started as a hoot, I guess, and maybe somebody gave you a chance to hey, will you give this a shot on Sirius Satellite Radio, which is now what? What'd you say? Uh, is it thirteen years or something like that? I mean, the first weekend of July would be thirteen years. My anniversary wow. was the first week. Can you believe it? Yeah, and so how did that happen? And and uh, you know, we you say, you what the heck? I'll tell you quickly. There was a guy in Nashville, Tennessee, who is gone now. His name was Steve Popovich. Yeah, he's a super producer. He used to be in New York, and uh, he's one of the guys that kind of discovered Boss Skaggs. And he's more famous for having that Meatloaf uh, "Bad Out of Hell" album on Cleveland International Records. But he's a big guy uh, uh, corporately at Sony and all that stuff. He was down in Nashville, Tennessee. Yeah. Down there at Polydor, I think was the, the label was back in the 80s. Yeah. And uh, a buddy of mine, Bruce Swayze, took me down. He said, I want, you to, I want to introduce you to a guy, a booking agent down there named Buddy Lee. Worldwide attractions. Buddy Lee had everybody. He had Dion Warwick, Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings. He had the Spinners. He had B.B. King. Uh, everybody that you could imagine was under his thing. I mean, you know, just any great. He booked all these acts. So I went over to, to see Buddy. And Buddy said, let me call some. He called up Steve Popovich, and I had me to go over and meet with Steve. And then Steve picked up the phone and called Sam Lovella at Hee Haw. So I got Hillbilly Jim in here. He said, would you like to have him on cover? So that put me on two or three episodes of Hee Haw. But Steve Popovich and I became great friends. And uh, he lived in Cleveland, and and he'd bring his little son, Steve Popovich Jr., down to the shows in Nashville, and I'd get out with his little buddies to take pictures. Well, as time went by, Steve Popovich is a real dear buddy of little Steven Van Zandt, huh. who's in Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, okay. we all know who he okay. is. Yeah, and, yeah, they're buddies forever, and you know, he's in Sopranos. Well, yeah. when, Sirius X, when Sirius came up, it was before Sirius XM, just Sirius Radio, because there was XM first. They were talking about Steve Popovich had pitched me to do a show on this new thing they got called Outlaw Country. Yeah. Well, here's the deal. They courted me on it for about six, seven, eight, nine months. It's on, Sean. It's off, Sean. I said, is this going to happen? So I said to myself, I said, self, I'm going to need to do this for about a year just to make it worth my time if I do it. Well, lo and behold, Steve Popovich is the one that pulled my number, and I began my moonshine matinee in Outlaw Country, four-hour show. Steve, Steve Popovich is the one that pulled that number for me. Now, he died in some years, but his son is my producer, Steve Popovich Jr. Yeah. And my show comes on, uh, well, I'll just put it on Central Time and you'll have to do it. I'll put it on East Coast Time and you could just take it across okay. the country. Yeah. It comes on on Saturday mornings from 10 to 2 and from 2 to 6 on Sundays and it's on Outlaw Country 60. It's called Hillbilly Jim's Moonshine Matinee. Now, I have special guests from time to time and yeah. sometimes I just play box of tunes and I talk about wrestling and I, I'll talk about doing your show next week because I'm going to go down next week and record a couple more shows. So I'll oh, be awesome. doing that for a while. Yeah, tell them to tune in to Primetime with Sean Mooney. It's easy to find on iTunes. I'm, I'm going to tell them about Primetime. they got to check it out because uh, I'll be coming back again and we'll be talking about other things. Do you mind Do you mind if I leave you here with, a, with, a, with, with something you might remember? I'd love it. How about this? I happen to have a guitar by the bed. Like a well, that's guitar. awesome. <laughs> well, don't go messing with a country boy, country boy, country boy. Don't go messing with a country boy, don't mess with a country boy. Well, when I was a little bitty boy, baby, I cut my teeth on a big old tree. Mama peeled my bottle from a moonshine still. 
Yeah, uh, I can't tell you uh, how much I appreciate it, Jim, uh, really. And like you mentioned, uh, you are now a WWE Hall of Famer, but you, you have had a Hall of Fame life, my friend. Yes, sir. And it's because of friends like you that make that all true, and I believe it. And uh, good luck to you, and I'll tell everybody they got to check out my buddy Sean Mooney in primetime, baby, because it's happening. Yeah. All right, Jim, thank you so much. It's been awesome. Take care, and don't be no stranger. <laughs> 